Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 24 and as always, if you have questions that you want me to answer on a future Q&A episode, then send them to michael at scientifictriathlon.com or through the Facebook Messenger widget on the website scientifictriathlon.com. Before we get into today's questions, a big thanks to Roka on Roka.com for sponsoring today's episode. Roka are the world leaders in wetsuits, tri-suits and other triathlon and swim apparel as well as high-performance eyewear for triathletes and cyclists and other endurance athletes. Uh, today I want to talk a little bit more about their wetsuits because that is one of the most important, uh, I guess, uh, gear or equipment investments that we make as triathletes. Uh, it's important to have a wetsuit that you do not get shoulder discomfort or limited mobility from. And Roka has a great way of solving that with all of their different wetsuits from the entry level to the high end with their arms up technology that makes sure that uh, you have no shoulder discomfort and you have uh, excellent mobility. All of their suits also use premium materials, premium zippers and tape, glue and thread are handmade and they have excellent attention to detail. They also have a patent-pending buoyancy profile, which is uh, very cool. Uh, so they have uh, a 135 buoyancy profile, meaning 1.5 millimeter of uh, neoprene up top and 3 millimeters at the core and 5 millimeters in the hips and legs. And this will put you in the fastest possible body position in the water. If you are looking for a new wetsuit for your triathlon race season, look no further than Roka. Go to roka.com and use the promo code Show, all one word, all caps, to get 20% off your entire order. And of course, that promo code is also valid for any other thing that you might want to, to get from Roka, including sunglasses or swim skins or buoyancy shorts or or anything along those lines go to roka.com and uh, that promo code as i said will give you 20 percent off your entire order uh, all right so let's get into today's questions uh, starting with scott from spokane washington uh, scott writes i have a question about where to place my runs for ironman training in the past i have done three runs a week one interval or hill training run one tempo run and one long run. I have always done my long run the day after my long ride. For example, 112 miles on Saturday and a 20 mile run on Sunday. What if I did my long run earlier in the week so I could do a double long, double long bike rides on Saturday and Sunday? Could this have a better outcome? Uh, so thanks for the question, Scott. Uh, there's no right or wrong answer here, but uh, what you suggest is definitely worth trying in my opinion. I do think that having a double long bike weekend, uh, that sort of concept is uh, something that can be very effective. I've done it myself quite a lot and uh, seen great results from it. But ultimately, you will need to monitor how you feel and how you respond to it to see if it's right for you. And also, that's not just about the weekend, but of course, how does this impact the rest of the training that you do during the weekdays? But there are many potential benefits uh, and uh, some of them are, for example, you can do your long run on fresher legs compared to having a 112 mile ride in your legs. So that could be beneficial physiologically for sure, but even more so I think from a psychological and also injury prevention perspective, this is uh, a big positive for having that long run midweek. 
And for the bike, stacking two long rides back to back, it sort of means that when you start that Sunday bike ride, you you're it's as if you had already biked for one hour or i don't know if it's if one hour is the right amount but you you know what i mean i i guess you're already you're not starting from from completely fresh you're starting as if you've already done uh done something which uh, is positive because it can elicit uh, stronger adaptations so that's something that i think is uh is very uh, beneficial of that sort of back-to-back concept and in ultra running having a back-to-back long run is something that has become very popular because it's extremely effective so rather than going out and doing a, a 40 mile run on one one day per week many ultra runners they they do back-to-back let's say 20 and uh, yeah let's say 20 mile runs uh, on on a saturday and sunday for that same reason uh, when I've done personally done these double bike weekends uh, to make sure that I get in my quality on the bike as well because I might do one or zero uh, quality bikes during the weekday depending on how I structure my week I have tended to do some quality in the early part of the Saturday ride so I might do threshold intervals or VO2 max intervals uh, during the first hour or hour hour and a half of the bike and then finish off that uh, that ride as just easy endurance riding but keep going for for a long time so i get in a three to four hour ride but that contains intensity as that first part and then the sunday ride of course is is also just an easy long slow distance ride Uh, one thing that you also might want to consider and or that you have to consider is uh, about the running because if you are going to be doing that long run midweek then also having an interval run and a tempo run and all of them i assume on weekdays that might be a bit too much so you'll definitely need to monitor this at the very least but you might be better off just uh, off the bat scratching one of those other runs and or making it no intensity is what i want to say so for example doing just the interval run and the long run and then the third run that you do would be just an easy endurance run potentially you could do it on hilly terrain you mentioned hills there and that's great but just keep the effort very low so thanks for your question scott uh, the next question we have is from uh, josh also in the united states he writes i am 38 years old and a former uh, collegiate swimmer I was uh, an above-average collegiate swimmer, though certainly not elite. After graduating, I became a weekend warrior, uh, and my primary sport of choice became ultimate frisbee. I played that regularly until my 36th year, when I suffered a significant knee injury. I underwent surgeries, many months on crutches, and over a year of rehab. And as part of that, I re-engaged with my swimming roots and eventually added cycling and running uh, this past summer, Uh, which led me to triathlon and I am now focusing on participating in the Olympic distance nationals here this coming August. So a few questions for you. One, while my days of heavy ultimate frisbee play are now over, I'm still very connected to the community of players and play in some low-key local leagues. I'm wondering what, if any, endurance benefit I gain from this, or more generally, what benefit do field sports like soccer, uh, lacrosse, rugby, etc. offer to an endurance athlete? Does running three or four miles over the course of 90 minutes with lots of short sprints as well as lots of jogging and standing mean anything to triathlon performance? So... uh, 
By the way, I should have mentioned at the start of this episode, I'm trying to get quite a lot of questions done in today's episode as an experiment, so I'm not going to be quite as detailed with all of my answers. Uh, so, so this one is one of those short and sweet answers. Uh, but my answer here is that uh, compared to sitting on the couch, uh, playing ultimate frisbee or other field sports means a lot. It, it at least means something. It's uh, it's very good and very preferable to sitting on the couch. Uh, compared to for triathlon performance from triathlon or endurance sports perspective, compared to doing a structured swim, bike or run workout as part of a structured training plan, is uh, definitely much less effective. It is uh, There's a significant difference there. So I guess I would say that it falls right in the middle of that. On the one end, you have just sitting on the couch doing nothing. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, a structured, well-planned uh, session, which might be just an easy session, but it's uh, it all has a purpose, uh, which is part of a structured plan. So you have those two uh, on uh, different ends of the spectrum and uh, smack down in the middle, you have... Uh, playing field sports. That's, that would be my, my take. Question number two here. So again, Josh uh, keeps writing. Uh, I've logged thousands of training hours earlier in life swimming and therefore have very good technique as compared to most triathletes. My focus in triathlon has been mostly on cycling and running. Uh, thus far, I've not swum more than three times in a week for a maximum weekly total of around 4,500 meters. I've been a top five swimmer in every triathlon I've competed so far and then watched the field pass me by in the other disciplines. I'm wondering if there's really any benefit in increasing my swimming. Knowing my body as a swimmer, I believe I would need to put in at least a, a triple the amount of what I'm doing now to see even marginal gains like two to three seconds per 100 meters. And I'm not sure it would be worth it. With a focus on running the last few months, I dropped my per, per mile pace by over 90 seconds per mile from the start of autumn. I think I should continue to focus on running and cycling and not put in any additional time in the water, but I'm wondering what you might say. Yeah, I definitely agree here. Uh, the key for me is that uh, you say that you know your body as a swimmer and you know how you respond to training. And this is an important message to everybody listening. Uh, we need to get to know our bodies, know how they work and how they respond to training. And then we can uh, make much better decisions, informed decisions in, in training. So Josh... Um, yeah, I, I do agree with you here that if you keep getting past on the bike and the run, definitely focus on those two and do the minimum swimming required to keep maintain your current level on swimming and uh, that will be good enough. And I would say the same thing would apply even if we work in some margin in your estimates. Let's say that you could actually improve by four to five seconds per 100 by just doubling your swim volume rather than improving by two to three seconds by uh, tripling it. Uh, then still that four to five seconds would mean one minute, one minute, 15 seconds over an Olympic distance. But uh, for doubling the training volume, swimming, then I think that you will get much better gains if you focus on running and cycling, as you suggest. Question number three here from Josh, Josh is, additionally, my family recently welcomed a new member. And uh, so I have two young children at home. I know that getting ready for Olympic distance racing means putting in some long runs and rides, but committing the time necessary may not be possible. I usually don't have more than 45 minutes at any one time for training, but I often have two of these blocks in my day. 
Knowing that my rides and runs have to be short, how can I get the best bang for my training buck? I'm anticipating being able to get about one 90-minute session every other week this spring-summer, but uh, the majority of training opportunities will be capped at around 45 minutes. Should I still aim for that magical 80-20 distribution, or should I look to add more high intensity, especially on the bike, with my limited training opportunities? So, Josh, uh, great question. Uh, first of all, I would say definitely try to make the most of those 90-minute windows whenever you do have them and, and use them to, to get in a long, long bike or a long ride, run. Uh, second, uh, there's nothing magical about the 80-20 distribution, in my humble opinion. Uh, but uh, it serves, I guess, as a, as a nice framework and, and some guideline about how to think, but nothing magical at all about it. Uh, but uh, to to get more specific and and answer your question, um, what you do depends to some extent on your total training volume. I would say here, uh, for example, if you train forty five minutes per day, two times per day, every single day of the week, then that's uh, ten and a half hours per week. So that's already a fairly significant volume, definitely high enough that you you need to to do quite a lot of of very easy training. If you train a bit less, so let's say you train uh, train 10 times per week, 10 times 45 minutes is seven and a half hours, then you can definitely have a higher proportion of your workouts have intensity to them, but you still should definitely not have, uh, have hard workouts all the time. So as a general rule of thumb, I really think that for most of us, having two hard bikes, uh, two hard runs and two hard swims so this means two workouts per discipline where you have a main set which has uh, some which is uh, intense to it. I think that is the maximum number of hard workouts that it makes sense doing. You might get away with more, but I don't really think that that is going to add much benefit, but it's going to add a lot more risk. So uh, so if you for example in that ladder example where you have 10 workouts per week, 7 and a half hours total, if we assume 10 times 45 minutes, uh, then you would still have four completely easy workouts in that week and then those six workouts that might have intensity to them. But by the way, this is uh, this does not mean two plus two plus two uh, that I talked about. I said that that is the maximum number of hard workouts that, that I think that it makes sense doing, but it doesn't mean that you should be doing as many. This comes down to the individual very much, so you need to consider your history and perhaps you being newer to the sport and also having done surgeries uh, especially on the run, I would uh, I would be careful. Uh, so maybe just do one hard run per week might be a better option for you. Uh, and it definitely doesn't mean that everybody should do two hard bikes, two hard runs, and two hard uh, uh, two hard. What did I say? Two hard bikes, runs, and swims. Uh, personally, for example, I'm currently running six times per week, but only one of those runs is hard. So uh, so that's uh, one one example. Uh, but and if you are limited to those 45 minute windows and and we assume that you train let's say for for example three swims per week three or four bikes and three or four runs per week so that's 10 to 11 workouts per week then try to include intensity in two swims uh, per week and two bikes per week and perhaps starting with just one run per week and and if everything goes well then you can you can add intensity to, to a second run as well and see how how it works but for the remainder of the workouts, even if they are just, uh, in air quotes, uh, 45 minutes, keep them very easy. 
Uh, it doesn't matter that they are short. Uh, doing them at a moderate intensity won't uh, do make them any more effective than doing them at at an easy intensity, but it can derail the adaptations that you get from those harder workouts later. And uh, even doing them somewhat easy won't make them any more effective than doing them very easy. Don't try to push your easy pace. Rather, try to make the same easy pace that you start with feel easier and easier and easier and go at a lower and lower and lower heart rate. That would be be my suggestion here. Hope this helps. And uh, thanks so much for your questions, Josh. The next question here is uh, from Ben Rowlands in Australia, who writes, Hi, Michael. Greetings from Australia. Uh, I was wondering if the respiratory system can be trained for performance gains. I occasionally suffer from stitches during races and was wondering if there is any scientific research regarding this and how to prevent it from happening. There seems to be plenty of products out there that suggest respiratory performance can be improved by using gear such as nasal strips or rhinoid turbine. I'm not, I have to be honest, I'm not even sure what that is, <laughs> but I'll look it up after. And also equipment like the Power Brief Snorkel, uh, and uh, hypoxic training uh, with uh, an elevation mask. Uh, do you think there are any gains to be made by using any of these products? Also, what is your take on incorporating nasal breathing during training sessions and breathing techniques and rhythms during exercise in general? Keep up the great informative podcast. Okay, so thanks, Ben. Uh, those are some really interesting questions. Uh, if we start with the tackling the respiratory system, uh, this is uh, something that I recently got some specific insights into while while taking the HIT science course that I talked about before. So shout out to Paul Larson and Martin Boucher for putting together a great course. Uh, but the respiratory system is a component of the cardiopulmonary system. So essentially we want to get oxygen from the air that we inhale into our bloodstream and then pump out a lot of oxygen carrying blood from our hearts to our working muscles so that the muscles can, can extract that oxygen from the blood. And uh, what we know from science that, uh, that I just learned in, in that heat science course a few weeks ago is that uh, in this whole system, the respira respiratory system, so how much air you can inhale, that is almost never a limiter in the overall system. It's always something else like stroke volume or uh, oxygen carrying capacity of the blood or something like that. So, so the, the respiratory system is always strong enough to, uh, to contribute with enough air for, uh, and then it comes down to other factors, how much oxygen you can get into your working muscles. Uh, there might be some exceptions, but those would be medical conditions. So with this in mind, uh, no, uh, using products to train the respiratory system does not make sense in my opinion. Now you mentioned their hypoxic training with, uh, with an altitude mask. Uh, that's a different thing. That's not training the respi respiratory system. Uh, that simulates altitude, altitude, but, uh, still from, uh, from what I understand about altitude training and simulated altitude training, uh, if you use that mask to do, let's say you train for an hour with it, or maybe you even train for two hours or two times one hours during the day, then you still have 22 hours that you are at sea level and you're not going to get any benefits from training with that oxygen mask at all. Uh, now, <laughs> there might be a case there for then if you sp also spend 
14 hours per day in your altitude tent, then it might start working. But I think you can already understand that I would not really recommend this and not even for professional athletes. And and then you might also argue, and this is not my area of expertise, so uh, I should probably interview somebody about it. But I think that what would be more effective would be to just spend those 14 or 16 hours per day in the altitude tent and then actually uh, train without that oxygen uh, or altitude mask. So, uh, so that's uh, specific to, to the altitude mask, I guess. But uh, yeah, I guess this answers that first part of your question. As for nasal breathing, I actually, incidentally, I, I found a really interesting, uh, I found myself in an in- in- interesting or reading an interesting Twitter discussion uh, a month or so ago. And it was initiated by Steve Magnus, who is a great running coach. I'm just going to open it up here, by the way. He, he's a great running coach and the author of uh, the Science of Running book. So, oh, come on. I can't get the link to open up. So this is taking a while. Uh, but uh, he had, uh, he, he was writing, here we go. Just a second. Witness two myths that won't die in the athletic world this morning. A soccer team yelling, one, breathe through your nose, not your mouth. And two, uh, put hands over your head uh, to get air in after hard running. Both are nonsense. <laughs> and then there are tons of discussions here after that. But essentially, uh, the sum of it is that uh, I, there are plenty of really knowledgeable people commenting here as well. And, and a great discussion. And I'll link to this tweet discussion in the uh, in the episode uh, description. But uh, the sum of it is that... Uh, that no, the, it really doesn't make a set, make sense to to focus on on nasal breathing in training at all. So uh, it's it's all about getting oxygen into your blood. So, and if you can do that, then go ahead and breathe through your ears as well as your mouth and any other uh, bodily orifice that you can think of that we can leave unmentioned for for now. But but if you could do that, then that would only be be an additional benefit rather than trying to restrict your breathing. Uh, and finally, for stitches, uh, so we don't really know from science the uh, the mechanics behind them or or how to prevent them because there isn't a lot of research on them. Uh, I found a, a review article from 2015, and they noted that after a few studies in the 40s and 50s, there was a nearly 50-year gap in research on side stitches. So, so it's not something that's been extensively researched. But uh, what I found is that. <laughs> The, the basic things that we do know is that, well, we don't know the exact mechanisms and we don't know uh, how, how to prevent them. Uh, we do know that they are more common in younger people. but And we also know that athletes of all ability levels get side stitches, although elite athletes get them less often. But when they do, uh, they get them just as severely as uh, more amateur level uh, level athletes do. So that's for stitches. I'll link to that review article as well if you want to dig deeper on your own. The final question for Jay is from Tom from Belgium who writes, uh, I have a question that could be interesting to answer in the Q&A. What are the best ways to determine aerobic capacity or VO2 max and which training forms can increase it? Thanks for all the good work. 
thanks for the question, Tom. I have to say I love this question and these types of questions because this is a question that really owns in on the big important stuff and and the things that really matter and make a big big difference uh, to clarify all the questions that i select select for any q a episode are all good because i i want them to be uh, beneficial for the listeners of course so so i don't select questions that are not good questions to be honest for various reasons i don't select them for the uh, for the podcast but uh, uh but then there are like a spectrum of, of really good questions. And this one is like the Jan Frodeno of questions because it's, it's so excellent in that it really foc- focuses in on one of the big, big, big priorities of endurance sports, aerobic capacity. So we could talk for hours about this, uh, but I'll keep it short and simple. The best ways to determine aerobic capacity uh, would be a well-equipped lab with high-end VO2 max test equipment. And uh, now I I don't know personally which brands or types of equipment are the best or most accurate. I just know that there there is quite uh, quite a variance between different equipment. So so it's worth asking the lab staff if their equipment is high end or how it compares to the best in the industry equipment, and just hope for an honest answer when you decide which lab to go to. A second option uh, on the bike specifically at least is uh, to do a critical power test and analyze it with the software called Inside. Uh, so I discussed that in my interview with Sebastian Weber in episode 169. I'll link to that as well. And I'll link to, I do this testing protocol. So this is something that you can do your testing at home, send in a power file and get it analyzed. And this sort of testing has been validated to be, uh, to be of similar accuracy to lab grade testing. Uh, but that's that's only for the bike uh, for now. And uh, another way is to do a simple field test. You won't be able to estimate your uh, your VO2 max, but you can estimate your power or pace at VO2 max, which at the end of the day is uh, perhaps more important than the VO2 max itself because it will allow you to to plan your training effectively and execute your training effectively. So that would be to simply do just a five or six minute time trial. And the power or pace that you can hold for that duration, whether it's swimming, biking or running, that should be reasonably close to your, uh, to what your power associated with VO2 max or your pace associated with VO2 max is. If you use, uh, again, for the bike only, by the way, the WKO software, that does give a good estimate of your VO2 max, both power and uh, the absolute and relative VO2 max in, in oxygen, uh, per liter per minute. Uh, so, uh, and that is based on your real world power data on the bike. So, so it's pretty good. It's not, as all estimates, it's not exact, but it's, it's pretty good. Then there are tons of apps that uh, estimate VO2 max and your Garmin watch, probably other GPS watches, uh, do it. I'm unfamiliar with most of them except uh, the Garmin because I use a Garmin watch myself. Uh, I think it's very hit and miss with Garmin. Some people find that they are very accurate and they have actually verified this with lab testing, but for others, it's completely uh, off course. So so I would definitely not rely on these. As for other apps or similar, there may be good apps that do a better, good job of estimating it out there. I'm just not familiar with them. And honestly, if you want to do estimate your VO2 max in the simplest and cheapest way possible, then that is still very useful, then doing a five or six minute time trial is by far the best way. 
the best way to go. Again, you won't be able to uh, to extract your your VO2 max necessarily from that, but your power or pace associated with VO2 max, which is more interesting uh, almost than than the VO2 max itself. Now, briefly about how to train to improve it, uh, you have two pathways or two two choices, and uh, I think that doing both of them is is the best <laughs> the best way to go. So they're not mutually exclusive. It's definitely not one or the other. They they work in concert with each other. So we have volume or intensity, and for volume, I I would rate this as the highest. I think volume is definitely very underrated uh, for endurance athletes uh, today. Uh, not for professionals, definitely not, but for age groupers, I, I think it is. It, I, I may maybe CrossFit has something to do with it, <laughs> but who knows? Uh, but uh, terms like quality over quantity are thrown around quite carelessly. I'm sure I've done it as well quite a few times. But the truth is that to optimize your endurance potential, you need a certain training volume. You, you need quite a big training volume if we're really talking about reaching your full potential. And uh, you just won't be able to achieve that without a significant volume. And that's, of course, okay. Uh, we have jobs, families, etc. that uh, may make reaching our full potential uh, impossible. And that's not something that we're striving for. We're just striving to be the best that we can be with the time that we have to commit to training. And then, of course, that's what we have to do. We have to work with with what we have. But I think it is important to be very aware of the fact that that if you can increase training volume, then that is going to be a benefit in in most cases. Of course, I'm not talking about cutting out sleep to increase training volume or or stupid things like that, but but I'm talking about doing it in a sensible way. Uh, so so if you can do it and being aware that this will have a positive effect, that that is very important for for athletes to not fall in the trap of doing too much too hard training and but then just not consistently getting in a decent training volume uh, intensity can never replace volume uh, i think again you need both to act together to to maximize your improvements in in vo2 max in aerobic capacity when it comes to intensity there is quite a lot of research uh, but there so we know quite quite a lot and again uh, i'm using quite a lot of uh, referencing hit science here quite a lot because i'm just going through that course and they've done all the work for me here there are some things that we don't know but uh, what one of the main things that seems to be quite clear is that a key factor in improving vo2 max is to accumulate a high uh, a high amount of time spent at or close to your vo2 max in a single training session so uh, so that wouldn't be like doing one five minute interval every single day of the week but rather doing four of them in one session for example the types of intervals that work best for this purpose, for spending time at or close to VO2 max, also seems quite clear. And it is to do intervals that are in the range of typically two to four, maybe two to five minutes. Uh, so trying to accumulate 15 to 20 minutes of work, and I would definitely, as soon as an athlete is advanced enough, uh, I would definitely err on, on that higher side. So trying to accumulate close to 20 minutes. Uh, or even more in some cases, 25, uh, of work at that very high intensity using these sorts of two to four minute intervals. Uh, that is my number one strategy for sure when it comes to using intensity to improve aerobic capacity. So example workouts for this might be 10 times two minutes 
um, best effort essentially and uh, two minutes active recovery easy active recovery but still active recovery or it might be six times three minutes on three minutes off or four to five times four minutes on four minutes off or three minutes on three minutes off you might not need uh, for four minute intervals uh, three minute recoveries uh, might be preferable but but that's really splitting here <laughs> uh, essentially so so i think that you you get the point here uh, that uh, those sort of two to four minute intervals getting close to 20 minutes that that is in in a solid v, traditional vo2 max session that that is the best way when it comes to intensity now other types of intensities also do work and we know this from research uh, Steven Seiler's recent work with finding that eight minute intervals work great. So those would probably be somewhere in between your anaerobic uh, threshold and your VO2 max intensity. Uh, but uh, what I would say that it gets a bit more individual and this is purely from an anecdotal perspective. I don't have any, uh, any sources or references for this. Uh, so, uh, so if you ask for the best intensity, I would, uh, I would definitely prioritize the VO2 max intervals first. But then if something, if they somehow the athlete doesn't react well to that type of training, then that's when you might want to, uh, to add in some different sort of intensity to see if that helps. Just a little bit of science here as well. Why in, as for why you need both volume and intensity to improve VO2 max, uh, a lot of the improvements that we do get in aerobic capacity uh, they come from a switch uh, that is called pgc1 alpha uh, pgc1 alpha is uh, basically a regulator protein that among other things is heavily involved in helping your cells build more and stronger mitochondria which uh, in simple terms are the uh, the energy plants the power factories of the cells and this pgc1 alpha uh, which can uh, be activated if activated if you want to call it that by two main pathways in in endurance sports and those are the ampk pathway which is more associated with high intensity interval training and then the calcium pathway which is more associated with uh, just repeated low force muscle contractions so uh, tip, like long slow distance is the perfect example of this just a lot of lot of lot of muscle contractions not of any great intensity very low intensity in fact but that really activates that that calcium pathway and in turn switches on that pgc1 alpha regulator so this is a very big simplification of things, of course, but I think it's already complex enough. So let's not make it any more complex than that. But either way, uh, we want to like increasing mitochondrial uh, biogenesis. That's important. Therefore, we want that PGC1 alpha signaling. And to maximize that PGC1 alpha signaling, we can therefore infer that uh, we need to do both uh, high intensity training and uh, steady training, long slow distance training to, to use both of those pathways, the calcium pathway and the AMPK pathway, uh, to, to get the most out of the PGC one alpha switch. All right. So thank you again for your question, Tom. I hope that answers it. And, uh, before we close off this, this episode, I do have one house cleaning item. Uh, for those of you who bought the intermediate Ironman training plan on Training Peaks, 
uh, around about a month or so ago. The PDF version of that is now available. So if you recall, that was only available on Training Peaks at the time, but now the PDF is available and uh, you can have free access to that if you want it. Just email me, michael at scientifictriathlon.com. Use some good subject line, like, for example, Ironman Plan PDF, and uh, I'll send you access to that PDF version. Big thanks to Roka for sponsoring this episode. If you're on the lookout for wetsuits, trisuits, swim skins, goggles, high-performance sunglasses or other eyewear, all of those sorts of things, look no further than Roka that you can find on roka.com. Uh, they ship in uh, the US, but now also ship from the UK and EU, so no customs or duties, which is great, great, great news for all of us. And you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code Show, all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.